Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Staying Forever Strong. Today I have Rachel Tomlinson. She's also the blogger of Accessible Rach, and we're going to talk about her journey with blogging and her chronic illness and how she stays strong during these hard times. Hey Rachel, how are you? I'm okay today, thank you. Good, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never know day to day. Many times, yeah. How, um, sorry. Well, I'm glad you're doing okay today. How's, um, what's life like over in England right now? Um, pretty strange, really. It's everybody, there's, a, there's an awful lot of fighting going on between everybody and on yeah. what decisions should be made where and all the rest of it and I'm just staying in the warmth away from it <laughs> the safest way I can and that's, trying to shut myself out from social media that's good yeah the new social media that's all like crazy right now with everything it is it's just it's mental I know it's like can't. I just wish people would like wear their masks and stay safe, and then we could get through this instead of all yeah, the. I, I think I think with the, with the challenge where that we seem to be up against is with everybody's just sort of hanging out for this vaccination now, aren't they? And thinking it's going to be the magical cure. I mean, it it will help, obviously, but I don't think it'll help in the as quick as people think it's going to. Right. And in the meantime, the economy is just falling to pieces. One of our major um, shopping um, organisations, Arcadia Group, are talking about going into administration today, and they hold like the the sort of online um, high street shops that there's only a few of left. Um, I mean, I would imagine you've heard of Topshop and. Um, possibly i may have it sounds familiar yeah. yeah i think they're um i think they are in the states as well but yeah there yeah, is a massive, massive group of um loads of different uh, clothing shops mainly so trying times for everyone and it's all the redundancies that are going to come from it and what people are going to do when yeah I, so try to keep try to keep positive, but it's not always easy to keep positive. <laughs> no, not at all. But we got to try our best. But sometimes it just feels like day in and day out. It's like the same thing. So it's like it can be kind of hard. It is, Jen. I, I, I I'm sort of not struggling. To, I'm not struggling to. I am struggling to write with the fact that it's it's quite kind of taking it out of me writing at, at the moment. And I, but I think a lot of that's down to the fact that we're constantly, because we can't go out or we can't see people or anything, then we we seem to, I mean, I know I've myself, I've deteriorated quite rapidly in comparison to what I was nine months ago. And I think a lot of people have as well that have got chronic illness and yeah cancers and you know sadly you know we've we've lost people with cancer that we maybe wouldn't have lost if we hadn't had COVID to contend with as well so right because then you have to be careful like in the hospital like if they have to go to the hospital for treatment like you can't 
then they could get COVID and a lot of those kind of treatments stopped there in the first lockdown and that's just not yeah. that's just so scary that these things that you think you've got you should be getting treated if it's cancer especially right, <laughs> But if they haven't got the staff and the staff have had to be redeployed somewhere else, then they can't do it, can they? No, it's sad. It's scary. And it's, I just hope, I know one day it'll get better. Just, we don't know when. <laughs> no, we do it, do we? I think I'm that's probably the worst of it, really. At some point, though. Oh, it will, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think, I think some things will probably be better off for it. Um. No, I mean it's a, it's open doors for me that I never thought it would open. So, in the fact that I can do things from home that people probably told me in the past I couldn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> true. And I think I don't know if, about you, but I know like when the first because we had our first lockdown too back in March. But I think part of me it wasn't as hard in the beginning as it might have been for other people because I'm used to staying home a lot with my pain so like I felt like it was a little bit of an easier adjustment yeah we had we had really good weather more or less as soon as we Um, went into lockdown we had good weather so at least it meant we could get out the front and um I live in like a it's like a little community of bungalows and we've got a sort of big grassed area that, that separates the bungalows and we have picnic tables and, and what have you. So we were still able to be around our own pe- you know, our own people, yeah. if you like. And, you know, there was parties, not parties, but we used to go and drink in somebody, one of the back gardens on a night when it was, when it was light till late and it was warm enough to do that. But I think that the bad part of the, hard part now is the fact that it's like dark nights it's cold um and we can't meet outside anyway but we wouldn't want to meet outside in the cold right so we're all sort of shut back down again now and shut away from each other i mean we're keeping in touch with each other we're all texting each other or shouting out the door or something but <laughs> <laughs> so funny yeah no because when ours it was still like end of winter early spring when we first went in so it like wasn't that warm yet anyway but now it's like all of winter we're like gonna basically be in the houses and we're, I suppose we're kind of used to being in more in the winter but it, it's the fact that you can't do it I think that's right and we miss and I miss doing the the daft not daft things but I miss like going to the pub with like half a dozen of us going to the pub on a lunchtime and having something to eat when the yeah. pubs aren't even open, <laughs> so right. we can't do that. <laughs> and like because we're people. in one of the high areas for it, um, they aren't opening next week either. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just like it's hard because it's like those little things that you might we might have taken for granted, like that we can't do now. Like even just going shopping, like it's just yeah. the little things. It's not as easy anymore. No, it's not. Not at all. And I think online too, like everything was going to be going online at some point down the road, but it went a lot earlier, like school and everything. I don't know how it is over yeah, there. A but... lot of schools are still open. The world oh, shut out yeah. schools. And they're just the dropping like flies in, in the schools. They're just, just um, 
there's like 5,000 in the area where I live, there's like 5,000 pupils off at the moment. And that's quite a lot for the area that I'm in. Okay. Yeah. They're on doing online mostly right now. Yeah. You see, they won't close it down. Mm. They're absolutely adamant they're going to keep, they want to keep the schools up. So, yeah. I think they have a choice. Like, some families are sending their kids in school, some are just doing online only. But, like, the high schools for the next two weeks in Michigan, the state I'm in, are closed um, for like two or three weeks, but online only. I think the I think the problem a large the large part of the problem in this country is there are still a lot of children and families that don't have access to um, the internet. Yeah, and I know that sounds strange in this day and age, but there no, are or don't have the tools to do it, and that's uh, and our government said that they were going to provide these tools, but they're when schools apply for it, they're they're only getting like five when they're applying for 15 so yeah it's quite difficult it's separating i feel like this pandemic here in this country particularly has really separated the rich from the poor if that makes sense yeah no i the rich are getting richer and the poor are the ones probably still on the front line trying to keep us all going right and uh, stop working because they can't pay the bills if they don't if they have to stop working hey it's, i'm just praying anyway, just, i've just time. depressed you completely and i didn't mean to do that <laughs> no you're good you're good this positive bouncy person that i normally am i've just been miserable for the last 10 minutes no you're good you're good um it's actually a good transition anyway so What's your journey been like with, because you're, you have MS, right? Yes, I have primary progressive multiple sclerosis. What's your journey been like? How's the, from like being diagnosed and? Um, I was officially, I was unofficially diagnosed in 2013. Okay. Um, I had what they believed to be at the time, a trans ischemic attack, a mini stroke. Yeah. Um, and my consultant, stroke consultant at the time, wasn't convinced that that's what it was. So he asked a neurologist to see me. Um, I saw him while I was in hospital, which is pretty unusual. That doesn't usually happen. And he said he wanted to do another MRI and a lumbar puncture. And I had both done. And I went back to see him not long afterwards. It was all done fairly quickly. And um, on the MRI, I had um, two lesions on my brain, but they didn't. They weren't convinced that that's what they were. Mm-hmm. But when I had the lumbar puncture, I had a positive lumbar puncture. No, I didn't have a clue what. Nobody explained to me what a positive lumbar puncture was. I was just told, "You've got a positive lumbar puncture." So I went to see, I carried on seeing this. My, at the time, what, what was happening was I was, I was going into like near faints and passing out, mm-hmm. going really dizzy. And then my blood pressure was dropping and my heart rate was going through the roof. And um, I'd had two or three do's where I literally fell to the floor. Um, 
And that was what sort of sent me on the path of the stroke to start off with. Um, and I had all I did all the tests, you know, the balance tests and the touching your nose and, and all the rest of it, which you've probably had all of them. Yeah. <laughs> in your arms and your legs. Um and I and I just went to see him every six months and he just sort of said, How are you? And have you had has anything happened? And I've just sort of said, oh, I've had this one do and and then he was going back to he was Greek and he was going back to Greece and um there was a, I know there was a shortage of neurologists in, in our trust at the time. And I think it was a kind of right, I'm only gonna transfer so many over. So he didn't transfer me over. But at this, this point, I still didn't know that I had MS. Mm. Um, so that was like, the last time I saw him was 2015. Because he, he kind of signed me off and he just said, oh, if you have any more problems, then, then come back type thing. And then I got, I'd started to notice quite a few things. I was really struggling with getting up in the morning. Um, so so incredibly tired and well, I couldn't get my faculties to work when I got when I woke up my like my eyes wouldn't work properly and I couldn't hear properly and um my balance was all over the place and I was sort of it was a standing joke in our in my in our office where I worked that if we had a meeting somewhere that was early on then I would invariably be late but what they wouldn't know was that I'd been up two hours beforehand, before I'd set off. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get myself prepared to get in the car and drive or into a fit state that I believed I could drive, I used to have stopping places um, between, because I covered kind of a, quite a big radius, actually. Probably not a big radius to you, but... Um, in this country was a big radius for me um, it was I'm trying to think of the, it was probably over about 80 miles the sort of ra- 80 square miles the radius that I covered okay so I could be um, it could take me like two hours to get somewhere oh, um, okay. that, and yeah. like motorways and 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 air roads but the and I had and I had myself planned all these stopping places. They were invariably McDonald's because I lived off McDonald's coffee. But I literally had to stop at these places to have a coffee and nap for ten minutes because I could feel myself falling asleep while I was driving. Oh. And I then started to struggle with. I always used to be quite quick witted quite quick at responding to things and I, and my boss was one of these that used to be in the, be in the middle of a meeting and he'd go he'd just drop something at you just throw something at you what do you think type thing and I'd be going bang straight back at him and I'd started to sort of go oh what what did you say I was falling asleep in meetings that was another joke um, and then I started to have trouble transposing Excel spreadsheets and I used to have to literally go away for, I'd, I'd literally have this spreadsheet on the screen which which I used to be pretty good at doing and I couldn't 
the figures were there, but I just did not, it just, nothing registered. And I was actually on my way to a one-to-one, which was a little bit of a sort of capability meeting because I, I started to really slack work-wise, um, but there was no answer for it. And I, it was nine, nine o'clock in the morning and I was sat in traffic and I fell asleep. And, fans, and thankfully, I was driving a car at the time that when it stopped, the engine turned off. Mm. Because if it hadn't have done, I don't really know what could have happened. Um, and then I woke up in a panic and sort of, I, I just happened to be um, next to a lay-by. So I managed to pull off the road and sort of rang my colleague and said, you aren't going to believe what's happened. I've just fallen asleep. And she's like, it's nine o'clock in the morning. So I, I sat for a bit and got myself back, sort of pulled myself around. And I, then I went to the office, which was like 10, 15 minutes away. And when I got there, um, my boss and HR, which HR was on the premises anyway, uh, were waiting for me. And what followed was an hour of <laughs> probably the worst experience, what, probably the worst hour of my life, really. Because it was all like it was. It, it was like you're not doing this, and you can't do that, and you're falling asleep here, and you do, you know. We need to, and and it was sort of a we need to take you down, um, disciplinary really. Uh, so you can. So we've got three options for you. I sat and cried all the way through this, and I am not somebody who cries at all. Right. Um. I do cry, but I do. It's not something that I, it's not something I can switch on. Mm-hmm. What on earth just happened? There? Get off! Uh, yeah, it's not something that I can just switch on, or like some people can. And, and I'm not really a, an emotional type person. And um, it gave me three options of carrying on as I was and going down capability. Um, taking a pay cut and downgrading my role. No, downgrading my role, but not to take a pay cut. I'll go to the doctors. And I went to the doctors. (laughs) (laughs) And when I got to the doctors, I was, I I worked in the health, I worked for the NHS. So I worked in health centres and the health centre that I worked, that I I was at, I was actually, um, I managed the premises from a facilities management point of view. So I knew everybody. And I'd literally rung the practice manager and said, can I see somebody? And I went and saw the doctor and she said straight away, I think we need to get, I think you need to see the neurologist. So I was like, right, what do you think's going on? I don't know what's going on, but I think you need to see the neurologist. So because I had all, I was having, had all these dizzy spells and everything. So they gave me stuff for dizziness and, and what have you. Um, sent me home. I got. I went back to work the following week, and I was only there two days. And I just I couldn't keep awake. And I was sat at my desk, and I just could not keep awake. So I went off sick again, and, and the doctor signed me off sick. And he's and um, then I got a letter from the GP practice to say they weren't looking to send me to neurology they were going to manage me in house 
all this time, I still didn't know that I'd had this diagnosis in 2013. So that was actually sat on my record so that the GP could see. So there's oh, a lot of things. That, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things here that went completely wrong. So what followed was um, they decided I had chronic fatigue syndrome. Bearing in mind, it says on my records I've got MS. <laughs> they decided I had chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, so, of course, I had to wait to see the the chronic fatigue consultant. Um, when I eventually saw him about six months later, the first thing he, he did, he did all the tests and everything, and he said, yeah, I can give you a diagnosis of chronic fatigue, but what I'm interested in is what's on your records. And I said, what's on my records? So he said, well, I want you to see a neurologist. <laughs> right, okay. This is where I started six months ago. So I went back to the GP, I said, Dr. Thacker would like me to see a neurologist because apparently there's something on my notes. So the you like what's on your notes? I've got MS. It said no. on my notes from 2013 that I had MS. But did you, when these doctors are saying like, I want something on your notes, did they tell you it was MS at the time? They had it yet. No. no. <laughs> So the GP who I saw at the time said to me, so you'll be at least six months. So I said, I won't because I'll pay because I was still working. I mean, pain here is a lot different to you pain there. Um, and literally, it's a, it's a jump the queue here. You pay to see the consultant and they put you back on the NHS. And I walked in the, well, I, I was on a stick at the time. Um, and I used to, the consultant that I decided to see, I used to work with in the NHS, so he knew me. And I walked in the room, and the first thing he said to me was, I think we know what this is. So I said, okay. So he started, did, did a few tests with me. I said, let's get you off for an MRI and then come back in a couple of weeks. So I went off and had my MRI. Um, this sort of went on. It wasn't long at all. It was like two weeks after I had my MRI, two weeks after that, I was going back to see the consultant. Um, it then sort of went through all, sat and chatted to me. I think one of my biggest problems, and I think it's the biggest problem for a big problem for a lot of people, is you don't take notice of your symptoms. And as you're getting extra symptoms, when I saw the consultant, when I saw, well, I saw his registrar, I didn't see the consultant when I went back. She was really thorough. She, she was just at the end of her F2, which is like her second year junior doctor. Mm. So she, she was going on to another hospital. Um, so she kind of, our mine and some of the other um, consultancies that day were part of her final exams. But that doesn't say I won't take anything away from her because she was really, really good. So she was really, really thorough with me and she mm -hmm. dragged things out of me that I'd not told anybody else. Um, and then sort of after an hour, she said, she said um, I'm just going to go and see uh, Dr. Ming, who was the consultant. 
and she came back in and she said, um, we're going to give you a diagnosis. Um, I think you already know you've got, I think you already know you've got MS. So I said, well, I, do, I said, I do. I said, I'm assuming that that's what Dr. Ming thinks it is. But I said, I, I don't know I've got MS. So she said, well, yes, you have. Um, and she explained a few bits and pieces to me. She said, the MS nurse will she transfer me information across to our MS nurses. And then I would see them. And that was it. And it was only... I only found, I still only, I didn't find out the records that day. I was applying for, we have a disability benefit here called personal independent payment. And um, it's very difficult to get. Yeah. <laughs> we are entitled to it. And you have to get as much evidence as possible. And I asked my MS nurse to print me off my records that were relevant. And out comes this record with a MS diagnosis in 2013 that I knew nothing about. That's crazy. And it's just, I just, I feel so, I don't dwell on it because there's no point in dwelling on it, but I do feel quite let down by the whole system because it's like, yeah. I could have, if, if I'd have known when I was seeing Dr. Roman, who was the first neurologist, that I had MS, I could have treated it accordingly. I could have, I would have known it was there and I would have maybe, no, not, not restricted myself, but hopefully managed it. Right. A bit better than, than I did, because it had, had to get to like the, the bad stage before it was confirmed. Yeah, I'd feel the same way. So. so yeah, it does. It does have a bit of a. It's interesting actually because I've just my latest post is about imposter syndrome because I suffer from that massively, and I think that's one of the reasons because I went so long with people having that information in front of them that they didn't share with me, <laughs> feeling like a complete and utter fraud. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the worst. No, I. So from, okay, so from 2013, when you were technically diagnosed, but not diagnosed, it was like unofficially, when did you actually find out? Um, August 2018. Five years? <sighs> but I didn't find out that I'd been diagnosed um, in 2013 until the end of like 2018 yeah because they didn't tell me when the when they sort of said yes you've got ms <laughs> like i don't know why like so like you never even knew like what that lumbar puncture was all that time so yeah like, that this is the thing i mean the lumbar puncture now i know what a positive lumbar puncture is it's the obliminal bands on your spine that uh, that break down the myelin um, which is obviously what's caused me mobility issues. Right. Um, and also I have left-hand sided weakness. But so that's been happening for quite some time, it, it appears. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't know of. Uh, how, um, but, yeah. so did you have like a good support system during all this or? 
were you kind of just like on your own um like family friends yeah i did have family and friends that were supporting me um i did at the time think my employer was supporting me as well but now i look back and think there was probably more they could have done they kind of um followed the they wanted to go down the capability route but then obviously once i was diagnosed it was very difficult for them to do that yeah um, so they the problem was at the time i couldn't i mean i couldn't do that job now because it was just far too much time on the road you know that was when i was falling asleep i would have killed myself or killed somebody else carrying on that job but what and we were going through a restructure at the time so i was i was i felt like i felt very fortunate that there was the offer of voluntary redundancy um and I, t- and I took the offer of voluntary redundancy, thinking that, you know, I'll be quite happy, I'll be okay, I can do this, I can do that, I can buy a car and all the rest of it. And when I look, look back at the payout now, I think at the time I thought it was a lot of money, but it wasn't because I then didn't have any money. I couldn't claim for anything because I had too much money in the bank. Yeah. Um, I had to buy a car because I had a company car. Uh, I also had to move because I was in a a three bedroomed house with a staircase that I couldn't that was just totally unsuitable for me. So that and because everything was because I was moving from a three bedroomed house to a one bedroom bungalow, <laughs> nothing fitted. So everything had to be new, and then I got completely ripped off by somebody who was moving me who was supposed to be a friend and then disappeared off the face of the earth, um, as they do. I always say I won't get caught with things like that, but they really caught me out. So that money went pretty quickly um, in the grand scheme of things. And now I look back and think, I'm act- I actually think there's more they could have done for me, especially now knowing lockdown knowing that all these people can work from home i mean to a degree i did work from home because we we only had so many offices that we were going the remote route anyway now in our organization mm-hmm. where we only had so we didn't have a an office of our own or a desk of our own we literally had floating desks in an office hot desks in an office so you never went somewhere and you had your own things or anything. It was literally you sat down with your laptop and you got on with it. And because I moved about a lot, I did work from home quite a bit. But you always felt when you were working from home that that they thought, the, the impression they got was that you weren't doing anything. Right. When I was working from home, sometimes I'd be on emails at half past seven in the morning when I got up and still on them at half past ten at night. So... <laughs> So I was actually working harder, putting more hours in working from home than I would have been if I'd been sat in an office. Right. So I think the the thing that lockdown told us really, really quickly was there is this ability for people to work from home. So I think they, uh, in hindsight, I kind of think they maybe could have done more for me. They could have cut my hours back or and found me another role that I could do from home or predominantly from home. But they didn't, they just sort of saw the, right, 
we actually, I mean, my boss actually said to me when he, he suggested the voluntary redundancy, because I didn't apply for it when the restructor came in, you're supposed to apply for it. And I didn't apply for it because I thought, if I apply for it, that makes it look like that I want to go and I don't want to go. Mm -hmm. um, and when he suggested it, he said, you know, don't for one minute think that this has been an easy decision. If you were as you were pre-MS, we wouldn't even be considering it. And when I think back to when he said that, I thought, uh, now, I didn't, at the time, I just thought, oh, he cares. And then now I think back and I hear myself say that, how bad that actually sounds and how that possibly yeah. would have stood up at the tribunal. Yeah. If we were in your pre-MS state, we wouldn't be even attempt, attempt, attempting to let you take voluntary redundancy. <laughs> so basically it was saying... But I didn't see that. I just thought it was all nicey-nicey and I was going to have this big wad of cash, not realising that when I got this big wad of cash, I had to live off it <laughs> because I yeah. didn't. And you, I think the other thing with that that I, I didn't realise at the time, you kind of, we live by all means, don't we? So when you've got a regular amount going in the bank every month, you tend to live by that regular amount. Right. Well, I mean, I, I get less than a third of that regular amount now <laughs> and and a manager okay i don't i mean i couldn't get up and go on holiday next week or anything like that i'd have to save for six months <laughs> whereas when i was working i could have just gone right let's go to so so next week because <laughs> i had the money <laughs> yeah um but yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that are sort of, of, of sort of i've realized as it sure, goes further yeah. down the line how okay so how do you how did you like stay strong during some of these like when you like just when you have bad days or when you didn't know what was going on um i am gonna lie i had some really bad days i had some proper screaming crying mm -hmm. um just, I just didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, moving was really, really hard. Yeah. Because I had built up, I've been in that house 15 years. And I built up, and, and I'm 54. So you can imagine the sort of memories that, that I had in one bedroom or another. Um, and the space that I'm coming to here was this one bedroom bungalow with nowhere to put anything. So having to like throw things out. And when I started packing, like I started having to throw, have a clear out and what have you, about four months before I moved. And this is kind of how this removal them, well, they were, they were just cowboys. Um, they were recommended to me by a friend who was a carpet fitter. I said, oh, if you, if you need anything doing, you know, taking anything to tip or anything, they'll take it for you and what have you. And it seemed really, they seemed really helpful. They really wanted to do things for me. And, but I, I noticed as things, as I was sort of tidying things out or clearing things out, they were like stashing it. And I was thinking, where's that going? And then I, I found out a bit further down, they had like a tat shop, you know, like... <laughs> So, they, so in effect, they were selling my things. I only found this out afterwards. 
rather than taking them to the tip. Um, but so every time they walked through the door to do something, they were like, it was 50 quid. And then when I was moving, so every time they loaded the van, it was 100 quid. And it was like, whoa, this is, and I just kept paying it. I just kept paying it, <laughs> dishing the money. I've got the money, just dishing the money out. And that was, that was some really hard. I do remember sitting in the back bedroom among a load of boxes and thinking, how the hell am I going to get these boxes down the stairs? So I sat and cried. And I rang my friend Nikki and she came down. And then while she was downstairs, I decided to empty all the boxes and just throw everything everywhere. She, she got to the top of the stairs. I'll never forget the look on her face because she stopped me dead in my tracks, to be honest, because she was like, whoa, what the hell's going on? <laughs> well, I'm just launching boots and anything. And you suddenly have got this strength from I don't know where to be just like throwing everything all over the place like an absolute lunatic. I think I might have been committed that day if I hadn't have been calmed down. <laughs> And then I'd th I think it was just people like her that just just kept me going and kept me. And my, my best my best friend actually lives. I mean that that's one of being one of the hardest things with lockdown. My best friend lives hundred miles away, and I've seen her twice during yeah. lockdown. Hopefully, uh, her family live here as well, so hopefully she will get up at Christmas. But. But she kept me going through a lot of it, you know, like screaming down the video calls, screaming down the phone. <laughs> and I think, oh my God, she's amazing, that woman, the way that I've treated her. <laughs> okay, you deserve it though. Like you sometimes have to let it out. Oh, I know, when I, I know when I first moved in here, it was like, I hate it, I can't stand it, it's too small. It was just like... <gasps> I don't know anybody. I feel like I'm just going to have been brought here to die. Mm. And what I've been brought to is the most amazing community you could ever imagine being part of. That's amazing. I'm so incredibly grateful for what I have got now. I really am. My next door neighbour, I love my, my next door neighbour is like, they're both like my surrogate mum and dad. Um, it's an it's an elderly complex, you see. So they're all the young next to me is like twelve years older than me, and the rest <laughs> of them are sort of like seventies and eighties. But they are amazing. They all understand that you know because because I, when I first came, it was like oh my god I'm fifty four I'm moving in with all these old people and they're going to think. Um, uh, what does she think she's doing? Why can't she do that? And why is she doing this and all the rest of it? Really thought they'd have these preconceptions of me. And they didn't. And they're just so amazingly supportive. And I look out for them, you know. If anybody wants to go anywhere, I'll take them. And yeah. Just, I'm, and that's what, this is what's kept, probably what's kept me strong. We've kept each other strong. Yeah, in the last nine months, but I'd only been here what six months when we went into uh, just just short of a year when we went into lockdown. But I didn't really get involved in anything in the first year that I was here. It was oh, only lockdown yeah. that brought us all together, 
apart from next door, Pauline, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time with her since I first moved in, but yeah. Aw, and then did your writing help you too during a lot of this or? Yeah, well my writing, I started writing um, when I first went off sick from work because um, I'd had, uh, when I was 40, um, I had a really bad mental health episode, which I never ever thought I would have, but I did. And writing got me through that. And I had a blog at the time, it was in the days when everybody was on Blogger. And um, I've still got friends actually on Facebook from that time as well, made a lot of friends at that, time, at that point. So it was kind of a, I need to do something. Um, and when anything's ever happened in my life, no matter what it was, sort of, you know, losing my dad, relationships ending or anything like that, it's always been writing that I turn to. Always. Even if, it, even if nobody's seen it, right. there are documents all over the place on um, disk drives and memory sticks. Yeah. <laughs> They'll never be read. But at the time, I needed to get it out of my system. And then I, I quite quickly realised that I was um, I started to become a part of um, a local bloggers, joined a, 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 a whatever what all they're called. We have a whole bloggers, a whole in East Riding bloggers, which is where I live, and um, I joined them, made some friends, started to use social media. Uh, and then last February, I decided to re. I started off as um, my original blog started off as You Look Well Today, which was just like ranting, I think, about everything that was going on leading <laughs> up to my diagnosis. And it was just an outlet for me to say, I hate the world and the world hates me. And then Accessible Rage came about because I follow rugby league and I have followed rugby league for a number of years, 30 plus years. And because of um, access issues, I'd not really been for a year. Mm -hmm. So I decided last uh, February 19, when the season was about to start, that I was going to start going again. But to do that, I needed to know, how accessible it, these places were for me. So that was kind of how Accessible Rage came about because I would go to these, I would, it was a nightmare. The first three that I attended were hell on earth because I was ringing up beforehand or emailing beforehand and saying, right, this is what I need. Have you got this, this, this and this? And they all come back and go, yes. And then you get there, it's like, okay, you haven't, but I'm here now. What am I going to do? <laughs> So I started to do like reports on it. Um, and then I got involved with the Rugby Football League, which is like the overarching body for Rugby League. And we were just starting to get into working together around um, improving accessibility. And again, lockdown came in. Mm. 
But by then, you see, I'd kind of got myself out there and people were starting to read the blog. Um, and news, read, news, I'd done a couple of articles in the newspaper for like MSD, um, which I didn't really... They were. They contacted me, and now and when I when they wrote the article, the amount of abuse I got, I could not believe. But that's local newspapers. You'll probably have the same. Yeah. Issue. Uh, but then, sort of, local radio stations and local television were starting to pick me up from Twitter and what have you. So I kind of became the go-to for anything disability or accessibility and then I've got involved with the MS Society in the UK and volunteering with them um, and doing a bit more with them as well so it's it has lockdown has brought a lot of things to to, to a head for me because yeah. wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have even known they were there if we hadn't gone into lockdown so yeah that's how and now I actually, sometimes I struggle with writing because I get, because as I was saying about this Excel spreadsheet, the Excel spreadsheets, if I get really fatigued, which I, I would imagine you causes probably a lot of your issues as well. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it causes everyone a man. Um, then I can't see what's on the screen. I can't even press it. I can't even see what, the yeah. keypad doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and that was, and I was struggling for two or three weeks and that's why I started to, um, I start, I kind of started it off on Anchor as a podcast because that was the, the cheap, that it was a free, a free way of doing it. Um, right. And I read out old blog posts. Uh, but I'd always had a, a listen on, you could listen to my blog posts anyway, but it was a very sort of, monotone one turn um plugin on WordPress. <laughs> Whereas now I put the I obviously insert the podcast so you can listen to me. Yeah. Read it well look what you've done. Like you've done such amazing things like from this diagnosis. And I just want to say thank you for just everything you do and for coming on today. And thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for everything you do as well, because I do follow you as well. So I am aware of what you do. Thank you. And this was another episode of Staying Forever Strong. Um, I will see you guys next time. Bye.